Daniel chapter 2 is where we're putting in. We'll begin at Daniel 2, verse 14 this evening. Daniel 2 and 14. You can navigate there on your digital app or your analog Bible. I hear someone has an analog Bible back there. I heard it. That's good. We love the first responders, police, fire, and military. But if we're honest, if the police come knocking at your door, it's not typically a really great thing, right? If, if the police come knocking, they're not really in the business of giving out prizes like Publishers Clearinghouse or, or uh, really they're not in the business of giving out good news, right? Every now and then, the police themselves get a little bit of a surprise when they knock on a door. A few years ago, Around Christmas time, Ohio police shared a story and a picture on social media. Two officers knocked on the door of a wrong address. They didn't talk about what happened at the real address, but they knocked on the wrong address. And after the house owner opened the door and they figured out what was going on, the officers noticed that there was a decorated Christmas tree inside the house. And it was not your usual tree because on each ornament there was a message. They held the names of every human and canine officer that had been killed in the line of duty in 2016. The owner called it a tree of honor, so they took a picture with it, posted on it, and naturally that post spread through social media and on news outlets. So, surprise to them knocking on that door. Now, in our text this evening, the Babylonian police come knocking on Daniel's door. And it's really more than just a police visit, much more. It's the palace guard arriving to take Daniel and his friends to be torn apart limb from limb, probably in public. When we last left off last week, King Nebuchadnezzar had had a dream. It mystified him. It terrified him. He was very concerned with understanding what it meant. When his experts were unable to tell him what his dream was and its meaning, he ordered that all the wise men be wiped out. And now as they were being rounded up, the executioner gets to Daniel's door. They come to kill, but the Lord comes to the rescue. And rather than just becoming another victim, Daniel and his friends become, well, Daniel specifically becomes the man with the answer that Nebuchadnezzar is so desperate for. So tonight, as we see how Daniel came by this knowledge, we'll see his plan, his prayer, and his praise to the Lord in response to God sharing the secret of the dream with him. As we begin in verse 14, the scene we're dropping in on is really pretty straightforward. It's not a whole lot of moving parts here, but we'll get a look at the grace of God, his power working on behalf of his people, and how a believer can exercise a confident trust in God even in the most pressing of circumstances. So verse 14, it says, then with counsel and wisdom, Daniel answered Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. In these stories, uh, whether it's the ones we've seen already or the ones we're still leading up to, the lion's den, those sorts of things, Daniel always demonstrates a very remarkable calmness. He was a calm and collected kind of guy. And uh, that's pretty remarkable because he had some pretty scary encounters with these folks. He hears a knock at the door that day, he opens it up, and it's the head executioner who then explains, hey, I'm here to murder you. I'm here to brutally murder you, or I'm here at least to round you up where you're going to be brutally murdered. Now, as head of the palace guard, I think Daniel would have known this guy because Daniel uh, was around the palace, and so they would have had some sort of interaction. And the way we see them talking here, there's indication that they had uh, either a friendship or that they at least knew each other. 
But that's what's happening. The head executioner is there telling Daniel he's about to be killed. No appeals court, no city of refuge for Daniel to run to. It's a bleak situation seemingly with no uh, solution and no hope. But Daniel stays composed. He stays in control. And by the end of our verses, we'll get a peek into his thoughts about all of this. And we'll see that in all of this, his mind is full of trust in the Lord. It's the same thing we saw back in chapter 1 with the vegetable test, right? Daniel trusts God. If you want to describe Daniel and, and just the attitude of his mind and the attitude of his heart at any given point in this book, it's that he trusts God. Not just that God exists but that God acts and intervenes on behalf of his people. He trusts that that's who God is and that's what God does. And not just does sort of existentially, but that that is what God does in the lives of his followers and of his children. Now, all four of the hero characters in the book, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, all four of these guys consistently believe that God is going to do something in their midst, in their situations. And they not only believe it intellectually or sort of hypothetically that God could do something, it's clear that they hang the weight of their lives on this belief. They orient their decisions and their mindset and their actions according to this belief. If you could kind of dig into their thought process in all these situations and you, would, and you see the formula they're working out, you would see them saying, okay, here's the situation I find myself in. There's nothing that I can do. Obviously, God is going to do something. So what should I do in response to the fact that I know God is going to do something? They all consistently act this way, story after story after story. And that doesn't mean that they're passive all the time. You wouldn't say of Daniel and his friends that their mantra was, let go and let God. I just kind of float around, you know, like, uh, what's the van from Cars? What's his name? Somebody. The hippie van. He's just like, hey, man. He's always just kind of cruising there. That's not the way that they're acting. They're not passive all the time. In fact, we see Daniel acting in these stories. He acted in chapter one. He put a plan into motion, right? Uh, And here in chapter two, he acts We'll see it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in chapter 3. They don't just sit passively and wait for God to split the heavens open and smite their enemies, right? They work out a plan of action in each of these situations, but when they act, they never act to save themselves. They never act to come against what is going on. They just instead rather act in ways that honor God. How can I honor God in the situation I find myself in while also expecting that God is going to do what he does to intervene and show himself strong through their lives? So whether it was the last situation where he goes, gets to the chow hall, right, and they slide that plate of food right in front of him, it's all unclean, it's all unlawful for him, and he's right there in that moment, he says, huh, what am I going to do here? I can't really refuse to eat it. That's going to be a problem. But I certainly can't eat this food. That's going to violate my relationship with the Lord. What do I do? And what we see Daniel doing there and here with the lion's den, we'll see it with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. What they say is, okay, I'm not going to worry about saving myself or trying to scheme my way out of this. I'm going to figure out how do I honor God today in this situation? 
with this plate in front of me, uh, with this executioner at my door, you know, with this, this uh, you know, uh, command to not pray or this command to bow down to a golden image? What can we do right now to honor God? And I know that God is going to work in my life and through my life. Maybe I'll die, maybe I'll live, but God's going to do something. And so that's what they're doing in all of these scenes. And it says there that Daniel spoke with counsel and wisdom. He acted with prudence and discretion. He did not act rashly. And that's a great characteristic of Daniel because when we see him in these famous stories, we notice that, I mean, he has to act quickly. When the executioner's at your door and says, I'm here to kill you or I'm here to take you to be killed, you don't really get a, hey, can you give me a couple hours while I figure this out? I mean, they have to act quickly. In this scene, he has to act in the moment. There was no waiting period. But we see that his response to the situation was wise, it was thoughtful, it was controlled, because it all flowed from the deep resources of his relationship with God. He had a real connection with God, which supplied him in an overflowing measure with faith and truth and peace. And because of that, he's able to respond quickly, but with great thoughtfulness, with great prudence, with great wisdom. I'd also have us note here that when the executioner came, Daniel and he had a conversation, not a conflict. Daniel didn't pull a dagger and try to stab his way out of the situation. He trusted the Lord to defend him as he put a plan into action. And here's what he said, verse 15. He answered and said to Arioch, the king's captain, why is the decree from the king so urgent? And then Arioch made the decision known to Daniel. When Daniel uses the word urgent here, it can mean cruel or unkind or uncivil. And so he's calling it like he sees it. Daniel was never one to shy away from speaking plainly, even to those in authority. But we notice he does so with great humility and respect for Arioch, even though Arioch is his persecutor in this scene. Now, Arioch responded by saying this. This is the decision that Nebuchadnezzar has made. He's made his decision. You know, man may think he decides things, but it is God who superintends, right? Nebuchadnezzar can make all the decisions he wants, but we can be sure that God is in charge. And that is a great theme of the entire book of Daniel, that God of heaven is in charge. Whether the ruler of all of the known world is making decisions or not, God is in charge, and he will have his way. And it's especially highlighted in the prophetic portions of the book where it talks about these world empires. It talks about the Antichrist and all the things the Antichrist thinks he's going to do, but God is in charge. God wins. God will have his way. Verse 16 says, so Daniel went in. He's speaking of the palace and asked the king to give him time that he might tell the king the interpretation. Now, I think this is pretty remarkable. Nebuchadnezzar was in no mood to grant wishes to those condemned wise men. When we left him last time, remember, he hadn't been sleeping. It said his sleep was done for. He's all wigged out. He's just decreed that all the wise men, all the astrologers, all the scribes, all of those guys who run the government be all killed. And he's talking about how freaked out he is about not understanding what this dream is. And so he's not in a mood to grant Daniel a request. He was likely to have Daniel cut down right then and there in the throne room. And yet what do we see? Daniel goes boldly in and makes this request. There's no fear here. He just says, yeah, he goes in. And he says, hey, how about you give us some more time and I'll figure this out for you. Or I'll, just give me time so that I can receive the interpretation. 
Now, compare this scene to the famous throne room scene of Esther, that book of Esther, a very dramatic throne room scene, same sort of situation. If I go before the king, what if he decides to kill me? Only I would argue that Daniel is in way more real danger than Esther was. Yes, the Persians had their laws, but I mean, just think about this for a minute. Esther is the queen. She's married to the king. She, her Jewish identity is safely hidden. And yet, because she, in that time of her life, was living a carnal, ungodly life at that time, she was living in fear, right? I can't tell anybody I'm a Jew. I can't tell anybody that I follow the God of heaven who I'm not really following right now. And so, yeah, I know that there's this law going out that's going to kill all the Jews, but mm, I don't really want to go in there because what if my husband, who chose me, decides that he wants to kill me, even though he's not really that kind of guy. You know, Ahasuerus, his queen before Esther had completely openly defied him in front of everybody, really embarrassing him. He didn't have her killed, and it's certainly within his power to do. And she's like, oh, I don't want to go in there because he didn't ask me to come in there. Now compare that to Nebuchadnezzar, who pulls people apart for fun. And who has just said, hey, everybody in here, I want all of those people pulled apart in public. And then one of you says, yeah, I'm going to go in and ask that guy for a favor. How about that guy? How, hey, hey, man, I know you're really mad. I know you haven't slept in like a week. I know you're all freaked out because this thing is plaguing your mind. How about you do me a favor? I think that is pretty remarkable. What's the difference? Well, the difference is that Daniel was walking in godliness. Esther was not. And so as a godly person, Daniel experienced the promise we read about in the New Testament, where we find that we have not been given a spirit of fear, but of power, and that God's perfect love casts out fear. But when we don't walk with the Lord, even though the Lord wants us to give us that spirit of power, if we're not walking with him and if we're not receiving from him, oh, then yeah, fear is going to be a part of our life, especially when we're trying to live a lie. When you're like Esther and you're like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm a child of God, but I certainly don't want people to know about that. Okay, well, this is going to cause a real problem. As opposed to Daniel, who's like, hey, I just want everybody to know no matter what, I'm a servant of the most high God. And so he's walking without fear, and Daniel just models this promise that we receive in the New Testament about the kind of bold uh, spirit that we are given by the Lord, one that is not about fear, but that has confidence and boldness. Verse 17 says, then Daniel went to his house, made the decision known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, his companions, that they might seek the mercies from the God of heaven concerning this secret so that Daniel and his companions might not perish with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. So the guys had a prayer meeting. Throughout the Bible, again and again, we consistently see the importance and the value of God's people praying together. Uh, of course, your personal, individual prayer life is indispensable. It is essential, not taking anything away from that. But we should pay attention to the importance of God's people praying together. It's consistent throughout the Bible. And that's why we try to make opportunities for us as a local church here in Hanford to be doing just that. Whether it's here on Wednesday nights where we try to carve out some time for us to pray together. Or whether it's on Saturday nights at our weekly prayer meeting at 6 o'clock. Uh, God's people praying together is valuable and it's a vital aspect, not just of church life, but it's a vital aspect of Christianity according to the Bible, 
right? It's part of why we need to be together in the local church. There's a lot of reasons why the Lord says, hey, I've called you to be knit together with other believers in a local expression of the body of Christ. And praying together is a big part of that. Now, when these young men went to God in prayer, they appealed to his compassionate mercy, showing that despite everything that had happened to them, they still had hope in his compassionate mercy. That's pretty interesting as well. They still saw God as merciful and gracious, even though they found themselves as captives in Babylon, even though they'd been torn apart from their families, even though they knew they would never be home again. They saw God as compassionate. And so their prayer that night was, Lord, only you can save us, so we're asking you to save us so that we might not perish. Now, that was a real-world situation for them, but what a great type for us of how a person can receive eternal salvation, right? Look at this, this imagery in the story. There's only one way out of death by the intervention of God. There was no other way by which Daniel or his friends would be saved. How do you get that rescue? By asking in faith for God to pour out his compassion. It's by grace through faith, not of works. There was nothing Daniel could do to save himself from death, and he knew that. But of course, God comes through for these boys, reminding us that when it comes to salvation, the Lord will never turn away anyone who truly seeks after him. Here's a couple proofs of that. Lamentations 3.22. Through the Lord's mercies, we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. Psalm 103.13. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. John 6.37. All that the Father gives me, Jesus speaking, will come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. So, if you're here this evening and you're not a Christian, guess what? You are condemned to death like the wise men of Babylon. Because of your sin, you're going to enter into eternity after you die in this life and be condemned to hell. That's what the Bible teaches very plainly. But if you want to live and not perish for eternity, it's very simple. You just have to pray to God like Daniel did. Ask God to save you tonight by his grace. There's nothing you can do to save yourself, but God is more than willing. He wants to save you. And so pray that the Lord will save you by his grace and he will not refuse you. It doesn't matter who you are, what your background is, what you've done, what you could have done. God will not refuse those who come to him by faith. Now, verse 19 says this, Then the secret was revealed to Daniel in a night vision, and so Daniel blessed the God of heaven. A secret of Nebuchadnezzar's dream came to Daniel, and with that get-out-of-jail-free card in hand, the very first thing he did was rush to the palace so that he could save himself from a grisly death. No, that's not what he did. Uh, The first thing he did was compose a song of praise to the Lord and perform it, at least in their little group there. It's pretty remarkable because I'm guessing uh, that Nebuchadnezzar had given Daniel a limited amount of time to come up with the answer. It's like in the movies, you have 24 hours. I'm guessing it was something like that. Nebuchadnezzar is not a kind person. He's not a generous person. He's not a gracious person. He's the kind of person that does awful, terrible, horrible, no good, very bad things to people. And he is, enjoys killing people, especially people that he thinks has wronged him, right? So Daniel comes in. And by the grace of God, you know, the Lord's worked on Nebuchadnezzar's heart enough to say, okay, I'll give you some time. But I'll tell you what he did not do. Say, yeah, take as much time as you want. So Daniel's on the clock, right? 
But Daniel goes to the throne room of heaven before he goes to the throne room of Babylon. And in this prayer song, he magnifies God as the one who gives generously and one who has the ultimate authority over all the world. Verse 20, Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, for wisdom and might are his. They are his. They are not ours. Your life, your intellect, your strength all came from your maker. Uh, Back in 2012, some of you will remember, then President Barack Obama created a, a bit of a PR firestorm for himself when in a speech he said, if you've got a business, you didn't build that, somebody else made that happen. Now, of course, in the age of digital media, it's all removed from its context, and everybody was arguing over that for a long time. What did he mean? What didn't he mean? Is that true? Is that not true? It was kind of a PR nightmare uh, for the president. I can understand why people might be upset about that. But, you know, while the pundits are arguing over that statement, Daniel says this, you know what? Your wisdom, your might, your breath in your lungs, that is not yours. It's not from you. You didn't make it. You don't earn it. You don't deserve it. That belongs to the God of heaven. That's from the God of heaven. God is the maker. And, you know, as we're thinking about this, if you're a Christian here tonight, God is still making you, right? He wasn't done when he fashioned you in the womb. As a Christians, we're told that God continues to fashion us and to form us and to conform us into the image of Jesus Christ. And so he's still making you. He's still giving you wisdom and strength and all of those sorts of things. Uh, And that is a wonderful work that he's doing. Now, I like how the verse opens there. It says that Daniel answered. It's written as if it was a response, because it was a response. I mean, God had just worked in a dramatic, wonderful way, and Daniel responded to God's work. Now, I find it's really easy in my own life to just sort of take the Lord for granted, right? We love the Lord, and we know all of these things about the Lord, and particularly if you grew up in a Christian home, it just it just ends up being a little bit easy for us to take the Lord for granted, to take his work sort of for granted, his grace, his care, his many gifts and blessings that he gives to us, his sustaining of our lives. It's just easy, at least for me, maybe not for you, it's easy for me to just sort of take that for granted. Oh yeah, the Lord's working in my life. It kind of reminds me about like the tap water in my house. I'm not thankful for the tap water in my house. I should be, right? I mean, I don't really marvel at the fact that I have tap water in my house. And not only that I have it, that it's relatively clean and clear and healthy, right? And then you read about what the World Health Organization says. Meanwhile, 3.4 million people die every year just because their water's not clean, just from waterborne illnesses that could be taken care of with a little bit of chlorine, or that right now 146 million people on earth are blind because their water was dirty, Right? But I, I take my tap water for granted, or even worse, I find ways to complain about my tap water. This tap water smells a little weird, you know? Don't say that over in India. <laughs> oh, your water smells weird? My water made me blind, <laughs> you know? And so I find that I can take something like that for granted, something that is a very precious thing in many parts of the world. Now, 
Daniel here encourages all of us to respond to God. Man, take a look at what he has done in your life, moment by moment, to love us and to give to us and to care for us, to to work out all things together for good for us, to work out his plan, not just for my little life, but for all of human history, for the globe that he is restoring, putting right what we human beings have made wrong in the world, and he's going to establish his kingdom, this incredible work that the Lord is just pouring out moment by moment by moment all over the globe. And think about that work and respond to it. Not take it for granted, but answer the Lord with worship and praise and proclamation. We should be people who not only receive from God, but we respond to God. Verse 21 says, and he changes the times and the seasons He removes kings and raises up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Back in verse 9, Nebuchadnezzar used an interesting phrase. He chillingly said to the wise men, you're trying to change the times, but he implies to them, but I'm the one in charge of all of that. In reality, again, we see it is God who has this power. He has the absolute authority here. And think about this list here, the times and the seasons, kings and the wisdom and knowledge and all of that written out there in the poem. God has absolute authority over the situation Daniel found himself in, times and seasons, right? God has absolute authority over the source of Daniel's trouble, the king. And the Lord had the absolute authority to supply the solution to Daniel's tribulation, wisdom and knowledge. And you know what? Verse 21 is just as true today for you and me as it was 2,600 years ago. And so we should pray like Daniel, okay, Lord, I know that you have the authority and the power and the ability and the generosity. So Lord, alter our times according to your purposes. Raise up good and godly kings and leaders for us. And since God has wisdom and knowledge to give, we should pray Psalm 24, uh, verses 4 and 5. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. You know, we should ask the Lord for wisdom. The New Testament tells us that clearly. Verse 22 says, God reveals deep and secret things. He knows what is in the darkness and light dwells with him. The God of the Bible is not only a God of power, but a God of revelation. And he bids us come and have our lives lit up. He says, hey, come to me. I'm going to show you some things. I want to light up your life. How do we do that? Or how does God light up our lives? Well, we're told in both Testaments, Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. And then in John 8, 12, we read this. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So if you want to have your life lit up, knowing what to do, not stumbling around through life, but, but having a clear vision and clear understanding, go to the scriptures and follow Jesus Christ as he's revealed in them. Verse 23. I thank you and praise you, O God of my fathers. You have given me wisdom and might and now made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's demand. He calls the Lord God of my fathers. Uh, I think that is a precious thing because he may find himself uh, as a captive in Babylon, sentenced for death, at least in that moment, and yet Daniel knew that God had not failed. He had not failed Daniel personally. He had not failed Israel corporately. He had not failed his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
Daniel knew the law of Moses. We know that from chapter 1. He knew the stories of Jehovah's work through history. It's clear he thought, well, you know, uh, he interpreted dreams through Joseph. Why wouldn't he do it through me as well? He knew God's promises to his people. And he thought to himself, yep, all that is still true. You know, I may be a unicized uh, uh, captive in Babylon, uh, taken from my family, taken from my home, had everything in my life destroyed. I'm thrown into this weird pagan system where all these things are happening. Every few minutes, I'm about to be killed. But you know what? God is still God, and God is still true, and He is still good, and He's just the same God as He was to my father Abraham. He's the God of my fathers, and He's God to me as well. And that's true for us, too. What a great testimony that is from Daniel to us. The same God. Daniel here reminded himself in his praise by saying, the God of my fathers. Uh, Probably most of us here aren't of Jewish ancestry. But I was thinking about this. Perhaps it would be good for us to say in our prayers from time to time, hey, God of my Bible, right? And remind ourselves that this is the same God. God, you're the God of my Bible, Because I read these stories and I see the kinds of things that God did in the Bible throughout all of these books, throughout all of these stories, throughout all of these lives, whether it's the Old Testament or the New Testament. Look at what God did in the book of Acts. Look at what God did through the lives of the apostles. Look at what he did through the patriarchs. Look at what he did through the prophets. Look at what he could do with a man like Daniel. And you know what? The God of the Bible is our God. He's not different. He's not changed. He's not failed in some way. He's not weakened in some way. He's not Thor without his hammer or something like that. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is still able. He's still the God who does these things that we're reading about, who makes these promises that we read about. He's still God, and he is still with us. In fact, as we are frequently reminding ourselves, the Lord is with us in the church in an even greater way than he was with a man like Daniel because we have the present indwelling of the Holy Spirit all the time. We are the temple of the Holy Spirit now. Daniel couldn't say that. Like Daniel, we can trust God and declare what he has done in prayer and in worship and in public testimony. We can acknowledge and respond how he has answered our prayers and done great things and worked on our behalf. And we get to do that right now, tonight, together as a group. As we sing and take communion and spend a few moments in corporate worship together, honoring God, not just in our minds and not just hypothetically, but from our lips, honoring God, what he has done for us, what he has done for the world, who he is, his great and mighty work, his great and mighty power. And we get to remember together how great and how good a God he is. Amen?